This talk was given by Patrick Yunin Kelly at the Zen Center of New York City. Yunin is a senior lay student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. So good morning. Let me just start with this. Is, uh, this is called the Prostrations Verse. This is from the, the Soto School, um, which is what the lineage that we're part of. It's an English translation of the, the Japanese verse. The nature of that which can be and is worshipped is empty and still. One's own body and the body of the other are in essence not two. May we together with all beings obtain liberation, giving rise to the supreme intention and relying on the ultimate truth. So, uh, good morning again. Uh, my name's Yunin. I'm a, a senior lay student here at the temple. And uh, Hojin, Hojin Sensei, who's up at the monastery for a session all week, asked me to um, say something <laughs> this morning. So I'm going to try. And I, I've been thinking a lot about um, humility uh, and what that actually means. And so that's what that's what drew my attention to this first. For me, uh, I, I spoke about a little bit. I, I I spoke a few weeks ago, and humility came up, and I realized that it's just been bouncing around for me. So I want to explore it a little bit further. So as I said, I wanted to talk about humility, and as I was looking at humility, the question of authority came up, and what is authority, and maybe as a negative example, uh, humility versus humiliation, which is not the same thing. But what's the difference? And, and what does any of this have to do with putting, in, putting an end to suffering, which is really what this is fundamentally about? So let's see if we can um, shed a little light on that. So humility is a virtue in, in a lot of spiritual traditions. You know, we don't speak of it directly, or it's not translated as humility that much in the Zen Buddhist tradition. It comes, it's, it's really prominent, it seems to me, in, in Christianity. I'm not Christian, but I bump into a number of Christians from time to time. But humility, it seems it's not a virtue that's that's very highly appreciated in the, in the world today. You know, it's often seen as a, a sign of weakness or maybe um, a lack of self-esteem or a willingness to be a doormat or, or maybe just plain boring. We seem to value ambition, originality, self-expression, personality, being a big personality. And there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with these things per se, but it does tend to narrow our focus uh, when we're preoccupied with these qualities to the self. I mean, who is it that, that gets ahead? Who is the one who is original? And what is the self that's being expressed? In the Buddhist teachings, it's said that we... we see everything uh, through a dualistic lens. 
And there's all sorts of dualisms that we filter the world through. So up and down, inside and outside, right and wrong, pleasure and pain. The most fundamental dualism, it seems, is self and other. We divide the world into the self and other based on um, various conditioned attitudes and assumptions. And then we identify with self and disidentify with other. And then we reach out, we try to grab onto the things that we like and push away the things that we don't like. And that's pretty much um, this process uh, seems to be happening uh, 24-7, often below the threshold of consciousness. It's very subtle and, and very fast often. And so we, we don't even see it most of the time. That's just reality. Um, you know, we mistake our, our, uh, this confected perspective for reality. And this, according to the teachings, this is what causes us to suffer. I thought of, there's that, that aqua song about Barbie. The, the refrain is, uh, life in plastic, it's fantastic. So it's sort of like that. And I think the practice of, of humility is, is good medicine for this uh, predicament. And one of the ways that we do that in this tradition is prostrations. I've, I've said before, I had, a, I had a real difficult time with prostrations when I started the practice. Um, I, had a re- I felt a real aversion to them. Um, but I, I stuck around and continued to practice them, and I, I really enjoy them now. Um, and it's not because I submitted to some sort of Buddhist view or, or I just got with the program or something. I think it's more that I just started to see that, that what was happening was uh, larger than I, had, than I had supposed at first. One thing, um, when we talk about humility, um, I mentioned humiliation at the beginning, and I, I think it's important to understand that, that humility is not about humiliation which is, how would I define that? Maybe it's a, a kind of glorification of, of self-deprecation or self-denial or a kind of asceticism. And, you know, this does seem to be a bit of a, a vocational hazard for spiritual seekers. Um, it can sometimes show up as a kind of sanctimoniousness or spiritual pride or a sense of being holier than now sometimes, um, or to use a, a contemporary word, spiritual bypassing. I don't think it's avoidable, actually. I think it's in, in some sense unavoidable that we, we tend to this, because we are so identified with the self that we, whatever we take up, we, we frame it in those terms. Um, but self-denial, if you think about it, is a form of egotism, actually. In order for there to be self-denial, there needs to be a self. It's predicated on the idea that there's a self that's denied. It doesn't work any other way. Um, if you say, I am the most undeserving person of all, you just take out a few adjectives, you get I most of all. <laughs> and that's really what's happening um, with this kind of self-denial. Um, so I, th- I think humility, is, it's not so much about self-denial as just learning to hold the self lightly. Um, I was thinking about this. The word, the word uh, humility, it comes from, from a Latin word, uh, humilitas, which comes 
in turn from a word hummus, which means earth, actually. It's the same, it's not like the hummus that you eat, that's totally different. It's like, it's like um, well, I think if you're, you know, if you're composting something, it turns into hummus, the, uh, the compost. It's like the raw kind of soil, earth. It's, it, if you th- it's the stuff that, that the body will return to after we die, or return to the earth, to the hummus, the hummus. Not the hummus. <laughs> um, and when we practice prostrations, for example, we're, we're bringing the body down into contact with the earth, down on the ground. It's a very vulnerable position in a, in a way. And we sit zazen here. We sit on the ground. We put the mind down here in the hara, in the center of gravity of the body, the emotional center of gravity. We chant here, as you've noticed, in a kind of low monotone. It's very earthy. You know, all of this, in a sense, uh, it's taking refuge in the earth. The practice of humility, I think, is, is taking refuge in the earth. The earth, does not, so the earth does not argue, is not pathetic, has no arrangements, does not scream, haste, persuade, threaten, promise, makes no discriminations, has no conceivable failures, closes nothing, refuses nothing, shuts none out. Of all the powers, objects, states, it notifies, shuts none out. It's said that on the eve of his awakening, Shakyamuni Buddha was challenged by the legions of of Mara, who is sort of the, the, the Buddhist personification of delusion, and Mara, it said, asked the, the, the Buddha to be, by what right do you take the seat of enlightenment? Who is your witness? And challenged by Mara in this way, the Buddha just simply reached out his right hand and touched the earth. And he said, the earth is my witness. And soon after that, when he had his great insight, he said, how wonderful, how wonderful, I attain the way together with all beings and the great earth. The Buddha's insight was, was not at all the end of the story. At first, he really hesitated. He considered teaching, but then he thought, what this, this dharma that, that I've attained is too, it's so peaceful, sublime, difficult to understand. People aren't going to be able to be interested or, or understand it, even so. But after he was, after considering further and being begged by Brahma, the, the king of the gods, um, he decided that he would teach. And so he got up and entered the world. And he spent the next 50 years of his life walking around northern India, teaching whoever was interested in what he had to say. And so in a sense, he, he renounced the, the peace, the, the enjoyment of solitary sitting, and he exchanged it for the, all the conflicts and problems of human existence for the next 50 years. So in, his, uh, in one of his fascicles um, called Immo Dogen, who is uh, the Japanese monk who founded this lineage in the 13th century, Dogen says, one who falls to the ground uses the sky to stand up. One who ignores the sky and tries to stand up cannot. One who falls to the sky uses the ground to stand up. 
One who ignores the ground and tries to stand cannot. So what about that falling to the sky and using the ground to stand up? I've been speaking about falling to the ground and using the sky to stand up. That's form as emptiness. What about falling to the sky and using the ground to stand up? Emptiness is form. I've, I recently started uh, training as a, as a hospital chaplain. And so uh, there's a group of us. There's, there's uh, seven or eight of us. And uh, we've been asked to, we were asked to, to formulate in a sentence or two what, what we're trying to achieve by this, what we want to learn in this process. And uh, I noticed that authority is a really big theme for people. Uh, what is what is my authority? What is and what right do I have to call myself a chaplain or to go in there and present myself in this way? There's a lot of feeling of unworthiness or deferral to outside authorities: the medical staff, the chaplain supervisor, the doctors. Wanting to be approved by an outside authority or liked. Wanting to have authority, fear of misusing authority, fear of making a mistake and hurting someone. I remember years ago, I went into uh, Dokusan with Daido Roshi, who is the, the founder of our order. He died about, I guess, 13 or 14 years ago now. I went in there, and so we do this face-to-face teaching. It's it's one-on-one. And out of nowhere, I hadn't even said anything. He looks up at me and he goes, you've got an authority problem. <laughs> and I was like, well, okay, doesn't everyone? And he said, I don't. <laughs> and I said, well, wait, you're the same guy who, when you were in the Navy, told the chaplain, told the uh, officer to piss off and got put in the brig for a week on bread and water. And he said, yeah. I told the officer to piss off and got thrown in the brig. No problem. <laughs> so <laughs> I've, been, I've been chewing on this for a while. <laughs> and I, I was thinking, um, you know, someone recently said to me, uh, to pretend that you don't have power is an abuse of power. And I, I think that's in part what he was getting at. And so, so my question out of this is how do, how do you, how do we play a role? How do we use authority with humility to tie it back to that theme? And, you know, we all have some sort of influence or power. It's not to say, of course, there are, we all occupy different roles in, in this culture or society. You know, stuff like gender, race, class, age, ability, all of this has an effect. But even so, I think we have a lot more power than we realize. I mean, there's, there's secular power, conventional power, which depends on these positions. But there's also spiritual power, spiritual authority. And, and I think that's what a lot of this tradition is pointing at, trying to get us to recognize our own spiritual power. And I think this comes from... from Humility from taking refuge in the earth. You know, there's a story, and I, I thought of in, in Greek mythology. There's a story of a, a giant named Antaeus, 
who it said that he was endowed with invincible strength whenever he was in touching the earth. Uh, but when he, when he was lifted off the earth uh, by Hercules, who was kind of a brutish hero, <laughs> who was wrestling him, he, he lost his power. So, you know, I'm thinking of, of, for example, this role that I'm in right now, being a senior and giving a talk. In a sense, it's a service position. So it's, it, in a, fundamentally, I don't think it's any different than handing out the sutra books, being an usher, or receiving beginning instruction for those of you who came in for the first time. That's also a service position. And our, the way that we try to take up these positions is to, to let go of our agenda to the extent that we're able to, and to meet the situation, and to meet other people, and to be of service that way. And at the same time, we can ignore the fact that handing out the sutra books is not the same as giving a talk. You know, crossing Flatbush Avenue at rush hour is not the same as lying in the sand in the sun on Coney Island. If you mistake the two, you're going to be in trouble. So what is this taking refuge in this earth that, that turns into many different forms? And that in another piece of writing, the Mountains and Rivers Sutra, Dogen, again, says, Earth is not earth, water, fire, wind, space, or consciousness. It is not blue, yellow, red, white, or black. It is not form, sound, smell, taste, touch, or idea. Nevertheless, the earth of earth, water, fire, wind, and space is spontaneously appearing. He continues, uh, the Buddha has said all dharmas are ultimately liberated. Dharmas being phenomena. So all phenomena are ultimately liberated. They have no abode. We should realize that although they are liberated, without any bonds, all dharmas abide in their own state. So how does this... um, kind of emerging from emptiness into form function in terms of um, compassion, in terms of putting an end to suffering, which again is what, what this is all about. I was just recently reading this book. Uh, it's kind of a strange book. It's called uh, Psychoanalytic Diagnosis. I'm not an analyst or anything, um, but I, I, I'm just, I find it interested in, I'm interested in different personalities and personality types and and, and I guess what we would call like sort of delusional, the, the, the different ways that we get caught in, in delusion. And the one who wrote this book was talking about writing, about working with people who are, have a, um, a, a psychopathic orientation. So therapists who, who specialize in working with uh, psychopathic patients. That is to say, um, I mean, there's a technical definition, but basically people who have a sort of predatory uh, power-seeking orientation. Um, and then the reaction that, that it, it's apparently very difficult to work with, <laughs> you can imagine. Um, it's difficult to work with such people. Um, and she was talking about, especially newer therapists who are working with them, they get caught in this, this counter-transference, which is to say their, their projections onto the, onto the person. And she said that often newer therapists, they, they, they try to, to, demonstrate that they're being helpful and that the, the psychopathic person will often see that as a, as a sign of weakness. 
And when that, when they're rejected in this way, they often feel hostility, contempt, moralistic outrage to the patient. Um, but then she says these unempathic feelings, uh, uh, should be understood paradoxically as a kind of empathy with psychopathic psychology. Uh, the client is unable to care about the therapist, and the therapist finds it almost as hard to care about the client. Outright hatred of the patient is not uncommon, and is no cause for worry. <laughs> since, the ca- since the capacity for hate is a kind of attachment. And then she talks about this a little bit more, and then she, she quotes this other therapist who, who, this is a really nice example, I thought, um, who works with, who is working with um, sort of these, these people who have this sort of psychopathic tendency, and, and a lot of people from, from the underworld in Los Angeles, where this person was. And so he tells this story. This therapist tells this story. He says, a pimp came to me and started to discuss his way of life. He said, you know, it's a pretty good way to live, and most guys would want to live that way, you know, to live as a pimp. Why shouldn't you do it? Why shouldn't anyone do it? I said, you're a jerk. He asked why. I replied, look, I live off the earnings of call girls. I wrote a book about them. I got respect for it. I got famous from it. They even made a movie out of it. I made much more money off call girls than you ever will. And you, you schmuck, you can get arrested any day and be sent to jail for 10 years, whereas I get respect, honor, admiration. This he could understand, the the therapist says, this he could, the client could understand. He saw that somebody whom he considered similar to him had a superior way of accomplishing the same ends. And so this is interesting to me. It's, it's, it's that what he's doing there, I think, is, is he's able to find those, those tendencies. He's able to really meet the person where they're at and find these kind of psychopathic tendencies in himself. Um, uh, but he's doing it from a basis of an ethical orientation and, and, a, and a, a sort of um, orientation of based in compassion. He's trying to help this person. But meeting this person with love and light is, is probably not going to be effective because that's just not where the person is at. And I think to, to hold all of this, uh, a sense of ethics, a sense of compassion, and one's own delusions are, are antisocial impulses. I think that requires a lot of humility. It's like th- that quote I used earlier was from Walt Whitman. Um, the earth closes nothing, refuses nothing, shuts none out. I mean, he's looking to help the client, but in, in a way that the client can understand. And later on, he, 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 uh, he, he writes that, that the people who stick around for a while, um, sometimes they're mandated by the court, but uh, they, they often, after a couple of years, they, they sink into a deep depression and they, they really struggle. And he, he says because they're starting to care about him, about the, the therapist, and this is totally unfamiliar to them. They don't even know how to handle that. And it's just so out of their, it's off the map for them. And so they, they have a real hard time with it. And eventually, perhaps, hopefully, you know, they'll find their way. But one more, one more short story in the same vein um, about Daito Roshi again. There was a, there was a, um, a student um, years ago who, who had some kind of, um, I don't know what his condition was, but he, he, he got kind of detached from reality sometime and had sort of hallucinations. 
And he was sitting, says Shin, this week-long silent retreat that we do in the, in the monastery, in the Zendo. And he was seeing um, little men running around. And they were swinging from the rafters and then running between the zabatons and, and, and goofing around and horsing around. And so he got the, this person got the giggles watching these little men running around. He's, <laughs> and it was starting to be a disturbance in the Zendo. You know, there's this guy just like giggling away and everyone else is silent. And so he went into Dokusan with Daido, and Daido said to him, you tell those little men that as long as they're in the Zendo, they're going to have to sit Zazen. And that means, <laughs> that means they have to be silent. Those are the rules. And, and so this worked. He didn't deny that, that this person was seeing these little men. He just said they're going to have to sit Zazen if they're in the Zendo. <laughs> and... I think we can work with our own delusions in the same way. That is to say, work with them as they are, as opposed to how they ought to be. Or even... And this, this I think, requires humility. Dogen, again, talks of taking the backward step. He describes Zazen as taking the backward step. And we have to have humility to be able to see what's really going on in our own mind. And sometimes it's not pretty, but we don't have to identify with that either. Sometimes it is, we can be quite wonderful. We can be quite awful. And we're not either of those things. It's just mind. These things arise and pass. But our vow is to... As that verse at the beginning I quoted, may we together with all beings obtain liberation, giving rise to the supreme intention and relying on the ultimate truth. That's really our only concern. So let me just end with a little bit more of that, that um, Whitman poem about the earth. The earth neither lags nor hastens. It has all attributes, growths, effects, latent in itself from the jump. It is not half beautiful only. Defects and excrescences show just as much as perfections show. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.